The following audio is from Sacred City Church. For more information, please visit sacredcitychurch.com. Open up your Bibles to Genesis chapter 34. I'm going to pray. Father, again, we thank you for being so committed to spreading the gospel and so committed to having people worship you, having them enjoy you, that, that you are sending out church planners and you are sending out missional community leaders and you are making disciples and putting them on mission, that you are doing all of this thing. And it's such a thrill to be a part of, Father. From, the, from eternity past, you've written this story of redemption and we get to be a part of it in, in our day, in our age, in our culture, in the Quad Cities and in Collinsville. And I'm so thankful to get to be a part of that. My heart literally jumps inside of my chest to be a part of your mission. Something's going to last into eternity in the future, Father. What a thrill it is. And I pray right now as we open up your word that you would open up hearts, that you would open up our minds, that you would speak through my vocal cord, that you would think through my mind. Father God, that you would um, anoint me to, to deliver your word and you would anoint the body to listen. Anoint us to he hear with gospel ears this morning. We ask that you would do this for your name and for your fame and for your glory and for our good. In Jesus' name, amen. So Sacred City has an app. If you have a smartphone or, an app or a, a tablet, you can download Sacred City at the Sacred City app or a new version. You can find all of our liturgy there. There's a lot of ways to follow along, but I want everyone following along in the Bible to, to, today. And let me uh, just get us going by with a brief introduction. Today we're starting, it's on the heels of this man named Jacob having an encounter with God. If you've been here the past few weeks, you know that God has changed this man from Jacob, the deceiver, his name literally meant deceiver, into Israel. He's changed his name and he's changed his identity and he's told Jacob, who is now Israel, return to Bethel, the place where you first met God. It's in the promised land. Return to Bethel. And Jacob has since been reconciled with his brother Esau. Esau was threatening to kill him. The last time Esau had seen Jacob, he said, I'm going to kill you because you took my inheritance. Jacob had stole his brother's inheritance and his birthright. All right, so now God's, God's reconciled those two. And Esau said, come follow me to Seir. Jacob said, no, I can't. I'm supposed to go to the promised land. But Jacob doesn't quite obey. Last week we saw Jacob offer to God this partial obedience by returning to the promised land, but not going as far as Bethel. So Jacob right now in the story that we're about to read, Jacob is in a place that he shouldn't be. Okay, you know your mama told you about this, right? The first thing, bad things happen. You're in a place where you shouldn't be. Right? That's kind of what we're going to see today. <clears throat> He's settled down with his family in a city where God has not called him to be. You're supposed to be in Bethel. He says, nah, Shechem looks nice. This looks like a nice town. I'm going to build a barn. We're going to have, you know, we've got plenty of money. We're going to settle down right here on the edge of the promised land. And something unique has been happening after that la over the last few weeks. I've kind of dropped some breadcrumbs for us to notice, but I haven't really stated things too obviously. Over the past few weeks, the narrator, who is Moses of the book of Genesis, has dropped some clues for us that has been showing us something really important is about to happen regarding this woman named Dinah. Um, today we get to see what happens. As of right now, Jacob has 11 sons. And more than likely, many daughters, but only Dinah is listed by name in all of his 
genealogies, which is in itself incredibly rare. Um, It's incredibly rare for a daughter to be listed because families uh, trace their heritage through the male line of the family. You know, it was a patriarchal society. So the fact that Dinah is listed by name is a big hint that she's going to play an important role in the nation and the history of Israel. Dinah is the daughter, and it's going to tell us this in verse 1 again, restate it again for us. Dinah is the daughter of Leah. We remember who Leah is. Leah is the first wife of four. Leah is the first wife of Jacob. This is the wife that he was tricked into marrying. And and the scripture says of his second wife, Rachel says, Jacob loves Rachel and Jacob what? Leah hates. Jacob hated Leah. Okay. So Dinah is the daughter of the hated wife. Okay. We are meant to pick up this emotional context from the opening sentence in chapter 34. Now, Dinah, the daughter of Leah, whom she had bore to Jacob. Okay? Now, Dinah, the daughter of Leah. This has already been stated in the past so far. This has already been stated over the last three chapters. But the narrator is making a point. He's wanting us to pick it up right away. The wife that Jacob hated, this daughter, this is what's about to happen to her. Okay? So we know if you have a father who hates your mom and he's probably not too fond of you, there's going to be an emotional hole there. There's going to be a gap where the father, a loving father, is supposed to fill and protect and guide and nurture and kind of provide an identity for that there's going to be a hole, there's going to be a gap there. And that's what the author is, is wanting us to see. And right away, look at look how he follows up this sentence. Whom she had born to Jacob went out to see the women of the land. Okay, Jacob, great job. You're in a place you shouldn't be. You are raising a daughter that you don't really love because you hate her mother. And one of the things that happens because Dinah has this hole in her soul, she has this bleeding heart, she has this spot where the father was meant to be a strong leader and tell her who she is and tell her that she's loved, that she is intrigued by the women of the land, the pagan women, the godless women of the land. She's intrigued by them, so she probably sneaks out at night. She's a teenager at this time. Dinah goes out to a place where she shouldn't be, And something terrible, absolutely awful happens to her. Okay, now I'm going to tell you this. This is going to be different. I'm going to preach through this different. Number one, because it's just an awful chapter of the Bible. Okay, it's awful. So I'm going to to do this. I mean, it's a narrative text. So there's four main scenes and five main actors. And what we're going to do is we're going to kind of, you know, act like we're movie buffs in here. And we're going to, we're going to, we're going to study the four scenes and learn from the four scenes. And then we're going to dissect the five different characters. And we're going to learn from them today. Okay. So that's where we are. Here begins scene one. Kent Hughes says this, girls of merit marriageable age were not permitted to leave the tents of their people to go about visiting without a chaperone. And in in fact, the Hebrew term here went out, says she went out, bears a sense of impropriety. Okay. So this Dinah was more than likely a foolish, naive young woman. 
Okay, oh, it's just, I'm going to go check out the women of the land. I'm going to see how they dress. I'm going to see how they party. I'm going to see how they have a good time. I'm going to see what, what, what it's like out in the world. Okay, this is very much like, you know, naive young women going out to bars, getting drunk, and then just hoping they find their way home safely. Okay, this is what's happening right now. But something absolutely awful is about to go down. Verse 2. And when Shechem, the son of Hamor, the Hivite, the prince of the land, so it's a powerful man, it's the son, right? It's the, the son of Hamor, the prince of the land. Look at this. He saw her. He seized her and lay with her and humiliated her. This is meant to be a punch in the face. Bam, 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 bam. All right? He saw her. He seized her. He lay with her. He humiliated her. All right? More than likely, this is, this is at, at the best, this is a sexual assault. At the worst, this is all out rape. It's interesting to note here. Uh, let's, let's keep reading, actually. And his soul, after he did this, this powerful man, his soul was drawn to Dinah, the daughter of Jacob, and he, he loved the young woman and he spoke tenderly to her. So Shechem spoke to his father, Hamor, saying, get me this girl for my wife. Okay, what a creep, right? He rapes her and then he falls in love with her and he wants to marry her. It's interesting to note here. That after several years, about 4,000 years of wickedness, the wickedness of men hasn't really changed any. This ancient story from Genesis sounds very familiar to some recent news headlines that we've heard. On May 9th, the news story broke of three young women who had been rescued after being kidnapped and raped for almost a decade. And this horrendous story didn't come from the slums of New York City or the ghettos of L.A., but from the Midwest town of Cleveland, Ohio. A man had kidnapped three young girls, kept them as his sexual slaves and prisoners for a decade. This type of horrific crime should rightly cause us to experience a great deal of anger, it's a righteous anger. A lot of people say, whoa, you should suppress anger. You shouldn't feel angry. Angry. Anger is a negative emotion. That's not what the Bible says. Our God gets angry. He is a righteous anger. Now, oftentimes we get angry and it's not a righteous anger. But we should have a righteous indignation. We should be angry about injustice such as this. That is the appropriate response. What do we expect? I expect, maybe you're with me, I expect that this man in Cleveland, Ohio, I expect his head to roll. We cry out for justice and hope that at the very least he's going to spend the rest of his life behind bars. Can you imagine being those girls' father? Thinking they're dead for 10 years. Having your little girl locked in a basement for a decade. I can't imagine it makes my heart drop. It makes my stomach hurt. It makes, makes me sick to my stomach. And I'm just letting you know ahead of time. Sorry. I'm just going to let you know ahead of time. If something like this were to ever happen to my daughter, I will probably cease to be your pastor. I will be in jail because 
I will go Jack Bauer vigilante justice on this guy. And it's not even, and it's not, it's like a joke, but it's not a joke. I, like, fee, like this text was dangerous to me this week. It was heavy. I couldn't feel it. I'm look, I mean, I could feel it, and I, but I couldn't bear the weight of the text. And I'm looking at my two daughters, right? And I want to lock them in a cage myself to prevent stuff like this from happening. Right? The, the, the shotgun dad. There's a reason dads are supposed to come to the door with a shotgun when a child is dating. Right? Why? Because we know we're men. Ladies, you don't know nothing about this. We know the thought of every adolescent man. They're all like little Shechems. Every adolescent man is like a little Shechem. Right? He's a little pubescent. I mean, out of control. Nerves and hormones are firing everywhere. And we know that we have to threaten his life. If you look at my daughter, I will rip your eyeballs out of your head. <laughs> this is not a joke. Those of you guys who, you know, my brother Alex, he's got, he's got two boys and one boy on the way. He don't have to worry about this stuff. He's just got to whoop his boy and wrestle him and let him know who's boss in the house. I got two daughters. I'm going to have an arsenal at my house. <laughs> Why do I CrossFit? So I can wear a sleeveless shirt when he comes over and go, What? <laughs> I'm 40 years old. When he's, by that time, I'll be 40 years old and I can choke you out. I got video. I fought in a cage once. I'm going to let him know. I will let him know. All right? Men, it is our job to protect our daughters. There should be no such thing as a father who's not overprotective. Here's the deal. Who says, I have an overprotected father? Who says it? Foolish dinas. Foolish dinas. My dad is so overprotective. There's no such thing. Well, I don't want to go there. I mean, I could literally lock her in a cage and that would be a little overprotective, right? So there could be overprotective fathers. But most of the time, there's not. Fathers, you know what's in the heart of young men. You know what they want, right? We know this. So yes, we're meant to protect our young daughters. And as I thought about this this week, I just... What, are you, what can you do? This world that we live in is so wicked. It's so dark. And there's so many foolish philosophers. And there's so many foolish politicians. And there's so many foolish people out there who want to promote this theology that says people are basically good. People are basically nice. People are basically kind. And yet those same people, those hypocritical leaders, still have deadbolts on their door. Still have gated fences and, so, and, and security outside their door. Why? Because we know... This world is full of wickedness and evil. Man. So this story can really hit close to home for us since we just saw something very similar happen in our own news stations this month. But this is thousands of years ago and there wasn't the advanced legal system that we have today. So what happens? What happens in response to Shechem's sin and Dinah's kidnap and rape? What we're going to see in, in, in this text today is what happens in response to this sin is, 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 is this is hard to say, but it's as equally as awful. What happens in response to the sin is equally as awful. See, by nature, we are sinners who respond sinfully to being sinned against. So when sin, someone sins against us, by nature, we want to sin against them. And that's what you're going to see today. You don't see justice. You see vigilante justice. You see revenge. So let's, uh, let's pick it up in verse 5. This is the beginning of scene 2. 
Now Jacob heard that, his, that he had defiled his daughter Dinah. Daddy hears about it. But his sons were, in the li- his sons were with his livestock in the field... So Jacob held his peace until they come. Okay? I get this at first. I'm reading this text and I'm like, okay, I get it. Jacob's waiting. He needs backup. Right? He's going to go after Shechem. He's going to take care of this Hamor guy. He's going to go after him. But Jake, Jacob, he's sitting, at, he's sitting at home. He finds out that his daughter's been raped and kidnapped. But he doesn't do anything at first because his, his, his backup is in the field. Right? Dads, this is why we want to have a lot of sons. Right? This is, we want, if somebody comes against us, they're not just coming against me. They're coming against my whole clan, right? That I got an, I got a little army to back me up, right? So this is what I think. Okay. All right, Jacob, you know, in the last chapter, Jacob was, he responded to his fear with courage and faith in God. Maybe he's doing that right here. Well, let's keep reading. Verse six and Hamor, the father of Shechem, went out to Jacob to meet with him. So now the father of the rapist is coming out to meet with the father of the victim. Verse 7, the sons of Jacob had come in from the field as soon as they heard of it. And the men were indignant and very angry. So the brothers are ticked here, right? Rightly so. Because he had done an outrageous thing. Look at this, this is awesome. He had done an outrageous thing in Israel By lying, having sex with Jacob's daughter. Do you see what we just did right there? The brothers say, whoa, this is wicked. I am angry about this. This shouldn't be done in Israel to Jacob's daughter. They just use both of Jacob's names. They use Jacob's birth name and they use Jacob's covenant name. Drawing us into this wasn't just a sin against you, Jacob. This was a sin against God. This is a sin against God's covenant. That there's this intermarriage, or they're, they're trying to do this intermarriage, and this thing's going on. So, we begin to see what's about to happen here, verse 6 to 7. That Jacob, he's not just a patient father waiting to use wisdom and waiting for his boys to get in, but he's actually, actually negligent. He's actually non-responsive to his daughter's rape, and now his brothers are irate about it. They're impassioned and very angry. And notice in verse 7 that they say, he has done this outrageous thing in Israel by lying with Jacob's daughter. Right? They're drawing attention to sin against us and a sin against our sister and a sin against God. But now look at verse 8. In Shechem, in step Shechem's dad, Hamor spoke with them saying, the soul of my son Shechem longs for your daughter. Please give her to him to be his wife. Basically, he's saying, Shechem thinks your daughter is so hot. He's already slept with her. His soul is connected. He's longing for her. Please just ignore the rape. Ignore what he's done. Ignore the kidnap. And then let's, let's, let's let, let them make this thing legitimate. He goes on. Please make marriages with us in verse 9. Give your daughters to us and take our daughters for yourselves. You shall dwell with us and the land shall be open to you. Dwell and trade in it and get property in it. So do you see where he's going? Now he's, he's appealing to a financial sense. He's saying, hey, ignore the rape. Ignore what went on. This is going to be prosperous for you. You marry with us and we'll marry with you. And the land, you'll be free to roam. You'll get the promised land without having to obey the covenant and obey God. We'll give it to you right now. And this thing, everything will go really well for you if you do this. Shechem, verse 11. 
Shechem also said to her father. So now the little horny, uh, aggressive, rapist young man, he doesn't, he's not patient. His dad's trying to negotiate and broker this deal and, and be really, uh, you know, PC about it. But then Shechem's passions and his desires, he just can't keep his mouth shut. So Shechem also said to her father and to her brothers, let me find favor in your eyes. Look at this. Look at this. Whatever you say to me, I will give. Now listen, that should perk our ears up. Do we remember a few chapters back that Jacob said the same thing to Laban about Rachel? Hey, what do you want for her? I'll do anything for her. I'll work seven years of my life for her. And Laban sat back and went, hee, 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 hook, line, sinker. And now we've got Jacob and his sons sitting back and they're on the other side of it now. And Shechem goes, name the bride price, whatever it is, I'll give it. I want this woman for my wife. Keep reading. Ask me for a great bride price as you, as, in gift as, as you will, and I will give whatever you say to me. Only give me, the, only give me the young woman to be my wife. That's all he cares about. And this is where dad balks. Jacob backs down. When the stuff hits the fan, fathers, this is where your leadership matters. In times of adversity, in times of difficulty, in times of great pressure, this is when your leadership matters. And Jacob steps back. Oh, I don't really know how to handle this. I don't really know what to do. Jacob steps back instead of stepping up. So Jacob's sons, see, somebody's going to lead. If the man steps back, oftentimes like Eve, the woman steps up. In this situation, the dad steps back and the brothers step up. Young, foolish Brothers, young, immature men. See, if the older men won't step up to lead the church, then the younger men are going to have to fill the place and step up. And yes, young men, we will make bad decisions. Why? Because we're immature, because we don't have the wisdom that comes with some of life experiences, because we've never been around this way before. So young men, lead, but we're going to make decisions. We have to repent often. But older men, if you're in this church, if you're here, step up, fill the gap, bear some weight, carry a heavy load. Lead your family, lead your wife. Don't step back. What's wrong with our country? Men step back and then other people have to step up and nobody can lead like a man. This is what God has set up. He leads his home like Christ leads the church. Leads the church. So these three sons, or these sons, not three, these sons that have been raised by one of the most shrewd and cunning men on the planet, Jacob, Right? Their dad's birth name was Deceiver. They picked up a thing or two. And uh, now they're going to apply some of his underhanded and conniving ways. I love this is actually... Uh, I'm not going to go there. Verse 18. Oh, no, I'm sorry. Verse 16. I'm sorry. Again. 13. The sons of Jacob answered Shechem and his father Hamor deceitfully right away. So this, guys, this is the filter we have to read the, next, the rest of this chapter. I'll be honest. When I read this chapter, I want these guys, what they're about to do, I want it to be 
I want these guys to be the heroes of the story. All right? I want these guys to be the guy that we smack on the butt and go, great job. You really stepped up and led well. That's not what's happening. Right now, we, they step up deceitfully. Okay? That's the filter that we have to read this with. Okay? Because he had defiled their sister Dinah. So right away, we know they're doing it. They're sinning because they sin, he sinned against their sister. Verse 14. They said to them, we cannot do this thing to give our sister to one who is uncircumcised. It's a sign of the covenant. For that would be a disgrace to us. Only on this one condition will we agree with you that you will become as we are and every male among you get circumcised. Then we're going to give our daughters to you and we'll take your daughters to ourselves and we'll dwell with you and become one people. But if you will not listen to us and be circumcised, then we will, look, take our daughter and we will be gone. All right? This is showing us that Dinah is still in captivity. Dinah is still a prisoner. Brothers say, we're going to take her if you're not going to get circumcised. Hey, verse 18, their words pleased Hamor and Hamor's son Shechem. And the young man did not delay to do the thing because he delighted in Jacob's daughter. This sounds like Jacob, does it not? Whatever you want me to do, I'll do it. Now listen, if you ever say this, fathers, let's just, let's just do this, right? Kid comes to your door and we would never do this. This is, you know, theoretical, hypothetical here. Hey, okay, you want my daughter? Here's what you got to do. You got to get circumcised. If the kid goes, okay, awesome. There's an issue there, right? There's a problem. That should, he should go, oh, I got to think about this. Hold on. That's painful. That's not, let me, let me, let me think. Let me go talk to my dad about this. But we see Shechem right away go, that sounds good. Let's do this. Right? He is got one thing on his mind, right? He's already defiled Jacob's daughter and he's got one thing on his mind. Let's keep reading. So Hamor and his son Shechem came to the gate of their city. This is where the men would gather um, to discuss politics and discuss the things of the city. And he spoke to the men of the city saying, these men, speaking of Jacob and his sons, these men are at peace with us now. Let them dwell in the land and trade in it. For behold, the land is large enough for them. Let us take their daughters as wives and let us give them our daughters. Only on this one condition will the men agree to dwell with us to become one people. When every male among us is circumcised as they are, as they are circumcised. And then listen, here, here's the benefit. Here's the pitch. Here's the politicking. Will not their livestock and their property and all their beasts become ours? Only let us agree with them. And then they're going to dwell with us. And all who went out of the gate of the city, look, listen to Hamor. And they listened to his son Shechem. And every male was circumcised, all who went out of the gate of the city. So Hamor and Shechem, they're influential, powerful men in the city. Who wants to have that conversation? All right, guys, there's this new, new group in town. We're going to trade with them. They're really wealthy. Here's the one trick. We all have to be circumcised. It's the only thing. That's the fine print, right? The fine print, we're signing this in blood. And they're like, I mean, they have to do the hard sell, and it's, you're going to get rich out of it. And every man, and this is meant to show us that every man in the city was thinking about one thing. We can marry their women. We can have their money. We can have their money. We can have their stuff. Sure, cut me. Let's go. They're wicked and evil men. But this is where we see Leah's two full or her, her two sons and Dinah's two full-blooded brothers lash out and revenge. Look at verse twenty-five. 
This is kind of funny, actually. It's kind of funny, but it's not. I mean, I can't laugh, but I want to. On the third day, when they were sore. (laughs) Can you imagine this? You walk into the town, like, where are all the dudes? They've all got ice packs, right? The women are just everywhere, and all the men are laid up. Oh, right? They're all sore from their circumcision. And what happens? Two of the sons of Jacob, Simeon and Levi, Dinah's brothers, took their swords and came against the city while it felt secure and killed all the males. This is their scheme. It's hatched. Okay, here's what we're... I mean, this isn't like just an opportunistic thing. This is cold-blooded murder. They had, this is premeditated murder. They knew it right away deceitfully. Oh, all you got to do, you want to marry our daughter? All you got to do is get circumcised. Three days later when they're sore and they can hardly move, they take their sword, they go out and they annihilate all the men of the town, kill every single one of them. They killed Hamor and his son Shechem with the sword. They took Dinah out of Shechem's house and they went away. Look at this. Then the sons of Jacob, so the other brothers, the ones who weren't, uh, impl- didn't, weren't complicit in this act, but then they come running in upon the slain and they plundered the city because they had defiled their city or de- defiled their sister. They took their flocks and their herds and their donkeys and whatever was in the city and in the field, all their wealth and all their little ones and all their wives, all that was in the houses, they captured and plundered. Now listen, to be honest, as a father and as a brother, I want to treat Simeon and Levi as heroes. I want to go, heck yes, that's what they did. You defile their sister, you defile his daughter, heck yes. Heck yes, that's what they did. You deserve the death. You deserve to be cut up in little pieces and everything taken from you. That's what I want as a father, as a brother. I want that kind of justice. They rescued Dinah. Dad's sitting on the side. Oh, what am I going to do about it? Oh, this is so nerve-wracking. There's a big city here. I don't know what to do about my daughter being raped and kidnapped. And the brothers go, well, I know what to do. It's a large sword here. I'm going to make use of it. Listen, but it would be wrong. I'm going to tell you, that emotion in me, that response in me, that's wrong. It would be wrong of us for a, to, to, to try to assume that there are that, that Simon, Simeon, Simeon and Levi are the heroes in this passage. And in fact, as you read and as you study this passage, the one thing, the glaring thing that just keeps popping up at you, there isn't one single hero in this story. All the characters are sinners who sin. And in a moment, we're going to do a brief character sketch on each of our actors this morning. But before we do, I want you to look at Jacob's reaction to his son's act of genocide. Verse 30. Then Jacob said to Simeon and Levi, you have brought trouble on me by making me stink to the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites and the Perizzites. My numbers are few. And if they gather themselves against me and attack Me, I shall be destroyed, both I and 
my household. Do you see? I kind of helped us read that, right? What's his response? Me, me, me. I, I, I. What do we hear about Dinah? Right? Dad is concerned with his own self-interest. Dad's concerned about his retirement account, his comfort, his reputation. Dad's concerned about himself. What about me? What about me? What about I? What about I? And this Moses, he's narrating this. He's writing it to the Israelites, as the Hebrew slaves as they're coming out of Egyptian bondage. And he ends it like this. Look at the last verse. But they said, so the brothers, they said, should he treat our sister like a prostitute? Chapter's over. Gordon Winham, in his commentary on Genesis, writes of Jacob. He does not condemn them for the massacre. He doesn't condemn them for abusing the right of circumcision. This is the mark of the covenant, remember? This is how we determine who are God's people. He doesn't condemn them for abusing the right of circumcision or even the breach of their contract. Rather, he protests that the consequences of their actions have made him unpopular. What are the neighbors going to think? Nor does he seem worried by his daughter's rape or the prospect of intermarriage with the Canaanites. He is only concerned about his own skin. Oh, Jacob, back to his old tricks. But the chapter ends with the brothers rebuking the father. Should he get away with it? Should he be able to treat our sister? He doesn't even say your daughter. He says to treat our sister like a prostitute. See, Jacob's sons don't respect his father anymore, this lack of leadership. They know that he didn't respond the way that he should have. Can I ask you, what do you do with a story like this in the Bible? Stories like this are why you stop reading the Bible if you start in Genesis. Right? All you guys who, who commit, I'm going to read the Bible this year, and on January 1st you start in the book of Genesis, and you only get to about this far, this is why. What do you do about it? I mean, if you're, if you're not familiar with the Bible and you don't know how to handle it, what do you, what do you, you're going to read this story and what are you, you going to try to get out of this? Right? This looks to me more like an episode of Law and Order Special Victims Unit right? than it does some kind of moral tale that you're supposed to pull out some, some you know, moral attaboy that you're supposed to go do and apply to your life. What are you supposed to apply to your life from this? See, the Bible is not a, some toned-down PG-13 story about perfect religious people finding their way to some kind of heaven or nirvana. The Bible is packed full of a gritty realism that is meant to absolutely shock us out of our monotonous lives and out of this dream world, this dream kind of religious world that we live in. That God loves good people and he's going to send you this little book that tells you how to live to be a good person. See, this isn't a moral fable filled with good guys and bad guys, which with, we are meant to draw out some moral of the story to emulate the hero. Good luck with that. What am I going to do with this text today? Hey guys, listen, don't massacre a whole city. It's probably bad. Right? 
This is what this is what just keeps shock, kind of shocked me this week and just kept going on, kept going over and over in my mind. There are no heroes in this story. Every character in today's story did things they should not do. But this is where the uniqueness of the gospel shines through. See, the Bible does a spectacular job at tarnishing the reputation of every single one of its characters, save one, Jesus. See, Jesus is the lone hero in the Bible. It was, if the Bible was a Western, Jesus is the one guy who gets to wear a white hat and ride the white horse. Everybody else, including us, we wear the black hat. Right? We are on the ugly horses and the black horses. That's what we do. Jesus is the one guy who comes on scene and everybody knows, oh, that's the hero. And what I want you to see this morning is that Jesus came to save people like this and people like us and people like you. And in the last chapter of Luke, when Jesus comes... Re, you know, after his resurrection, he appears to his apostles and he teaches them how to read the Old Testament. He takes them through the prophets and he takes them back in the Old Testament, shows how everything pointed to him. This is what it means to be gospel-centered at Sacred City, that we read the Old Testament in light of the New Testament. We don't read the Old Testament or the Hebrew Bible. We don't read it like Hebrews or Jews, waiting for a Messiah to come. We read the Old Testament in the Hebrew Bible. We read it as Christians through the filter of Jesus Christ, that he's came and he's fulfilled it all, that he's the hero that all of this is pointing to. Jesus died for women like Dinah, for men like Jacob, men like Shechem, Hamor, and Jacob's sons. This should sound scandalous to our Midwestern ears. Absolutely scandalous. The gospel is explicit in its content. He came for sinners. I'm going to say, we see this in two ways. Jesus is our example. This is how kind of the lens that you... An easy way to use the lens of Jesus, the gospel-centered lens, to read the Old Testament. Even, and, and even to fight your sin and to fight for joy. Two things. Number one, Jesus is your example. And number two, Jesus is your substitute. Okay, and we're going to do this through a brief character sketch here. Jesus loves the unloved Dinah. Jesus loves the unloved Dinah. The, the, the girl who has the ache, the father hunger of a weak father, the girl that has that in her soul. Jesus fills that. Jesus pursues her. Jesus loves her. Only, and then this is how Jesus is her example. Only Jesus knows what it's like to be a truly innocent victim. So he can relate to those who have been victims of sexual assault and rape. Jesus knows what it's like not to be, not to foolishly place himself in harm's way. Jesus knows what it's like to be an absolute victim, never done anything wrong, never sinned, but have the wrath of the world poured against him. Be assaulted. Jesus knows what Dinah feels like. 
He's her example of how to suffer well. He's her example how to suffer and sin not. How to be victimized, but not let the victim identity own you. Jesus was victimized, but he's not a victim. He's a conquering king. If you've been assaulted or raped, statistically, I know that you're in here. God, he, he grieves over that. Jesus grieves over that. Jesus knows what it's like to be an innocent victim. But listen, Jesus isn't just your example. He's also your substitute. See, when Jesus went to the cross, he absorbed all of that wrath, all of that anger. He absorbed it in himself and died. But he didn't just absorb the wrath. He talked to victims of assault and they feel dirty because the sin's not outside of their body. The sin's inside of their body. It's like a tent that's been defiled and they walk around feeling dirty and feeling victimized and feeling disgusting. And listen, Jesus was your substitute on the cross. He absorbs that shame. He absorbs that filth. He absorbs that feeling of being dirty and feeling abused. He absorbs it. It's called expiation. That your filth and your, that, that, that dirtiness that you feel was taken out of you and placed on Jesus. And he does what with it? He dies with it. He kills it. And he gives you a new identity of your pure and you're washed and though your robe were red like scarlet now you're white as snow Jesus is your example but he's also your substitute if you've been victimized this morning Jesus takes the place of Dinah Jesus also loves weak men like Jacob. Men that step back instead of step up. But don't, don't misunderstand what I'm saying. Jesus takes the sin of Jacob serious. He takes Jack, Jacob's lack of love for his daughter and his lack of leadership of his family so serious that Jesus was willing to die for that sin to make Jacob righteous through faith. See, some of us that cry out for justice and they cry out that we think that God lets sin go on and maybe you have a father who's been weak and he hasn't led and you're so angry at him and you're so angry at God. But no, 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 you're you're not seeing clearly. God takes Jacob's sin so seriously, he's willing to crush his son because of it. He's willing to kill his son to pay the price. Only Jesus can take weak men and selfish men and change their heart to be tough and tender shepherds and fathers and leaders like God's called them to be. Men, every man in this room should desire and should aspire to be an elder and a leader in the church. Every man, every man in this room. Why? Because the Bible says so. Will all of you be elders? Absolutely not. But that's what we're to aspire to. And Jesus loves Dinah's brothers. Jesus knows and understands the wrath of Dinah's brothers, the anger and the righteous indignation and the fury that they feel that they want to lash out and and take vengeance upon the perpetrators. 
They were right to be angry and want vengeance, but they were wrong in how they executed it. And I want you to go, if you have your Bible, go to 2 Thessalonians. So many people have this idea of Jesus where Jesus, listen, Jesus came in humility. He was born in Bethlehem, right? He was born in a stable and surrounded by animals and he was impoverished and he grew up this poor carpenter, this humble son of a carpenter. Jesus was very humble in the way that he came and the way that he appeared to us. But can I tell you, that's not how Jesus looks anymore. That's not Jesus anymore. I want you to look at this. Second uh, Thessalonians chapter one. Whoop, where am I at? Chapter one, verse six. Actually, just start. Yeah, that's verse six. Fine. Since indeed God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you, to grant relief to those to you who are afflicted as well to us. And look at this. When the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven. It's in his second coming with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. Listen to me. For those of us like Dinah, who have been victimized and have been assaulted, you realize there's nothing on earth that can make that right. Nothing can ever make that right again. You can kill the guy and you still feel raped. You still feel hurt. Nothing can vindicate for what you've went through. For Dinah's brothers, they killed him. They slaughtered the whole town. And guess what? They didn't sleep well that night. Their daughter is still, their their sister was still abused. Their sister still got to walk through life hurting and feeling dirty. So how do we walk through difficult seasons like that? How do we walk through life where bad stuff happens to people who seemingly look innocent? One of the ways we do that is by looking to Jesus. That Jesus, when he comes back, he's not coming back in a manger. He's not coming back with a little star in Bethlehem and the wise men are going to go bring him some gifts. Jesus Christ is coming back in his Shekinah glory and the stuff that we can't even look at. You can't stare at the sun. But believers will have these new eyes that we can see Jesus come back. The whole world will see it in flaming fire with millions upon millions of angels. And what's he going to do? He's executing vengeance on those. When I talk with atheists, I talk with people who don't believe in God. What happens with the Hitlers? They just going to put a gun to their head and pull the trigger and now they're done? Where's the justice in that? Here's where justice comes in. Jesus Christ will get justice at the resurrection, at their death, and the eternal lake of fire. Eternal lake of fire is the judgment. So why can we forgive our enemies in the gospel? How can we not take revenge when we so desire to take vengeance upon our enemies? Because we know Jesus, the only one who can do it with pure heart. The only one who can do it without anger and malice and, you know, the negative anger and and malice and, 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 and the sin that's in our heart. Jesus is going to set the record straight. And this is where you have an option. There's only two places you can go 
to get rid of the consequences of your sin. There's only, listen, everyone will get justice and justice is death and justice is damnation. Everyone will get it. Here's the loophole. Either the wrath and the vengeance and the justice of God is poured out upon Jesus at the cross or it's poured out upon you on judgment day. Wrath is coming. It's the other side of the love of God. God is, think of this. God is looking at the dinas. God is looking at the victims. God is looking at the people who have been hurt. And he's, he's so angry over that. He loves her so much. He's so angry over that. He's willing to execute his justice on the perpetrators. How can God be angry? It's the other side of love. If you love someone and you see someone hurting them, you're angry at the person hurting. So we have, we have two options. Either God's wrath is poured out in full upon us, not right now in this earth, but when we die, or that wrath once and for all was poured out upon Christ and by faith in his life, death, resurrection, and ascension, we can be credited the righteousness of Christ. And that diverts, it's called propitiation. It diverts the wrath of God away from us and onto Jesus. What a savior that we have. But Jesus also knows, and he loves men like Shechem and Hamor. Jesus in no way condones their behavior. But Jesus is willing and able to save such wicked men to show off the extravagance of his love and grace. One more text this morning, 1 Corinthians Chapter 6, verse 9. I feel like some, some of us have heard this scripture many times and we hate this scripture. We hate the Bible. If we're, if we're maybe on the, you know, we hate this when it comes up in politics. But I think many times it's because we haven't finished this scripture and we don't understand what, it, what it's talking about. Verse, verse 9 through 11. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Now listen, many times we stop there. Many times we stop there just because some right-wing guy wants to beat somebody with some morality. You are awful people. You're a sinner and God hates you and he wants to send you to hell. That's not how the scripture ends. Look at this next scripture. And such were some of you. And such were some of you. But you were washed. Thank God. You were sanctified. It means set apart for his work. You are justified. That means declared not guilty in God's sight in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the spirit of our God. Do you hear that this morning? Some of you, there could be rapists in this room. There could be sexually abusers in this room. There could be those who practice those, the greedy, the, the, those who practice homosexuality, those who practice all the idol, idol worship that he just talked about in that section. But here's the gospel promise. Such were some of you through the blood of Jesus, through his death, resurrection and ascension that you, that can be in your past. You can be washed. You can be set apart. You can be saved. You can be purified. You can be cleansed all by God's precious spirit. 
He justifies them by grace through his faith, through faith in his life, death, and resurrection. See, listen, Jesus alone can take our sin and kill it because he doesn't have his own sin to deal with. All the actors in our drama today respond sinfully because they have sin in them. Jesus was born the son of God. He didn't have the sinful DNA that we're born with. Because he didn't have that sinful DNA, Jesus Christ could respond without sin even when he was sinned against. If you and I went to the cross, we would only be making payment for our own sins. But Jesus was the sinless son of God. His death on the cross was a substitutionary atonement for all of those who placed their faith in the cross. We are meant to look at the story and be deeply grieved by the sin and the wickedness that we find in it. We're meant to read it and grieve with, the, with those who've been sexually assaulted like Dinah. We are meant to be angered by Jacob's lack and fatherly care and leadership. We are meant to notice the absolute lack of morality from the pagans, Hamor and Shechem. And we're to remember, we're to be wise as serpents and to remember that there are evil men walking our streets today that desire nothing more than to take advantage of those who are weak. Ladies, if you have a man in your missional community that's, that, that's, that's trying to love you and says it's probably not wise that you go out by yourself, it's probably not wise that you date that unbeliever, it's probably not wise. Listen, he's not trying to be some right-wing, legalistic, you know, control freak. He's trying to love you. He's trying to care for you. He's trying to protect you. One of the things I tell my son every night and I pray over him every night, his father give him tough skin and a soft heart and help him stand up for the weak, help him protect his sister and love his mom well. I want my son to be a man that protects the weak. Doesn't stand back and watch as bad things happen to people. And we are meant to cringe at the unbridled wrath and the vengeance dispensed by Dinah's two brothers. This chapter is one giant lesson on the depravity of mankind and the depth of our own sin. What can we do in the face of such wickedness? We turn the news on and it's everywhere. Listen, this, people, Sacred City family, this is why God sent Jesus. No one else in all of humanity could fix what's happened to us because of sin in the fall. Sin has ruined us too deeply. The rottenness of sin has corrupted our core. Mankind and all of God's creation is fatally infected by the curse of sin. And only Jesus, only the Son of God, who is 100% man and 100% God at the same time, who was without the curse and stain of sin because he didn't have a sinful father who passed down that sinful DNA. Jesus saves men and women like Jacob, Shechem, Hamor, Dinah, and her brothers. Jesus saves weak men and changes them by his grace. If you're weak through faith, look to Jesus. You keep your eyes there, he'll change you. I think one of the reasons many men don't know what it looks like to be a man is because they didn't have a strong father themselves. And what do we do? 
we don't have heroes, what do we do? We find a hero. And many times our heroes have become fools. Our heroes become athletes, musicians, people who've gotten famous. When when was the last time you read a, a biography or autobiography on a man like George Washington? Right? When was the last time you read a biography of a missionary who God gave his life overseas? Men, we need heroes. We need men that we can look to and aspire to. And all of those are subcategories and all those are under. Ultimately, we have to keep our eyes fixed on Jesus. Jesus can take a weak, passive man and give him a backbone and keep him tough and tender. Jesus saves rich, powerful, and corrupt men and he changes them by his grace. If you're rich, the majority of us in this room are. If you're rich, by faith, look to Jesus who gave it all up and became poor on our, for our sake. Jesus saves those who have been sexually assaulted. He changes them and he heals them by, by his grace where they don't have to walk around as victims. He says, you're my beloved daughter. You're my beloved son. If if you've been victimized, look to Jesus. Jesus saves self-righteous, zealous, and immature men. Thank God. And he changes them by his grace. If that's you this morning, look to Jesus. If you're like one of the young brothers, look to Jesus. Who was humble and weak and his weakness was made strong. We don't grow, we don't change, we don't mature by wallowing around in our own sins and failures. We grow and mature by fixing our eyes on Jesus, who is both our example and our substitute. He is our example and our substitute. A 19th century preacher, Robert M. Cheney, said, uh, for every one look, how do you live this? For every one look you look in, For every one look you look at your sin, for every one glance you take at yourself, take 10 looks at Christ. Listen, he's your example. He shows you how you're supposed to live. And this is the brilliance of it. This is why I, listen guys, I'm just gonna, sorry. I suck as an example, okay? If you use me as an example, all I can, I can give you kind of an example, but then when you fail me, you're going to feel like a failure, When you fail my standard or you fail to measure up to my level or whatever that is or the level you think I have, when you fail me, you're going to feel like a failure. Why? Because I haven't, I'm not your substitute. I'm not, I haven't justified you. Jesus is the only one who sets the the standard and gives us an example that's incredibly high. But every time we fail it, he reminds us, hey, hey, you remember? Yeah, yeah, I knew you were going to suck. That's why I died for you. I I remember, see, I paid for this. Now get back up, baby. Get back up. You're my son. You're my daughter. I've already paid for this sin. I've already paid for this mistake. I've already paid for this. See, this is why if you just have Jesus as your example, like many people do in our culture, you walk around with a a heavy morality. That's all you have is morality. But when when he's your example, you get to see day in and day out how you fail him. But every time you fail him, you just feel more of his love. Because it's, it's all grace given to me. This is the gift. This is who 
Jesus is. This is how the gospel changes us as people. Not just an example, but our substitute. Praise God for the gospel. Praise God. And if you're in here this morning, you know what? And maybe you thought Jesus was just a great example. There's a lot of churches, I hate to say it, there's a lot of churches that teach that. And it's not the gospel. It's not the point of the Bible. He was your substitute. He took your place. He paid the debt that you owe. He absorbed the wrath that should be on you. He took the shame that you should feel over your past sin. He's your substitute. It's amazing. Let me pray. Father, I, I believe that the power of the gospel changes people. And even right now, weak men who are overpowered by pornography, weak men who've been taking advantage of women, women who've been victimized and they've carried that label around their whole life, that even now the power of your gospel and by your Holy Spirit, you're bringing healing to your people, that they are sons. And if they're sons, then an heir. Father, remind them of their identity. Apply it to their heart through your spirit this morning. Weak men, give them a backbone. For every one look, they look at their weakness. Have them look 10 times to Christ, who was their substitute. For those in this room who have never believed on Jesus Christ, I pray even right now you would give them faith to believe and they would place their faith in the living, resurrected son of the most high God who will come back in judgment and in fury one day. And all of those in Christ will rejoice as the earth is renewed and as all the sin is paid for, all of creation is made new again. And all of our sin atoned for. Father, thank you for dealing so completely with our sin. And as believers and as a family this morning, a family of faith, we come before your throne of grace and we come before your table and we take the bread into our hands where Jesus took it and he broke it. And he said, this is my body that's been broken for you. He is our substitute. And we take the cup and said, this is the cup of the new covenant. It's my blood that has been spilled for you. We take it and we eat it and we drink it this morning and we relish in the fact of the gospel that you are our example and also our substitute this morning. And Father, through this, let us renew our covenant with you. We are your people and you are our God. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.